0: Hello, and welcome to Baha'i Blogcast with me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is where I interview members of the Baha'i Faith and other friends from all over the world about their hearts and minds and souls, their spiritual journeys, what they're interested in, and what makes them tick. Enjoy. Hello, Baha'i Blogcast fans, the dozens of you, thank you for tuning in. It's me, Rain Wilson. And, uh, Steve Sarowitz, hi. Nice to be with you, Rain. Nice to talk to you, Steve. Here, slide in towards me a little bit more, sorry, and this is a kind of a, it's a low-tech sound booth we have here on my kitchen table. But, uh, listen, before we get started, you did a competing Baha'i podcast. What's up with that, Steve? Baha'i teaching rocks, Rain. Baha'i teachings, that's our, that's our nemesis. Uh, that's the nemesis of us at, at uh, Baha'i blog. I, I know how competitive Baha'is are, and I just have to... Yeah, we're going to take them down. But how dare you do a brand new podcast over at Baha'i teachings. We'll include that link for you guys, because uh, they're doing so, many, so much exciting stuff over there, and uh, really, uh, really excited for that. So I haven't listened to that one yet, but very excited to hear it. So, as you came in this morning, we were talking about how you were just at an interfaith activity mm-hmm. here in Chicago. Yes. A, you live in Chicago. Yes.
1: Chicago One, area. Yes. A wonderful organization called Interfaith Youth Corps. Who's trying, they're trying to do reconciliation. Uh, this will get you uh, unity and diversity is what they're trying to accomplish. How about that? I wonder where that idea kind of filtered down from Mm -hmm. and so are are they they're different than other interfaith kind of organizations um they're specialized in college campuses and they're trying to get people who are christian and jewish and muslim to talk to each other all faiths actually and Mm -hmm. to get them to it's really just promoting the interfaith ideas and and doing some measurement on interfaith on college campuses oh great so what campus was this on today or was it this was at their headquarters which is uh, walking
0: distance from here Oh, fantastic! Good, and you—you you were saying that you were listening to a woman,
1: and, and what was the woman talking about? Do you remember her name by any chance? I don't, but it was two women. One was Palestinian, one was Israeli. Um, the Palestinian woman had lost her daughter, and the Israeli woman had lost their son in violence each from the other side. And it was—and they were traveling around together, asking for reconciliation. And uh, the Israeli woman asked, uh, "How do you define forgiveness?" So. You never make the mistake of asking a question with me around because I will answer it. So your your hand shot up. Of course, in I the was back
0: in. of the youth uh, yes. interfaith youth council, and you tried to you gave your stab at how to uh, how to answer that question. How do you define forgiveness? And the, uh, Steve walked in, and the first thing he said to me is like, "I just got asked how do you define forgiveness, Rain? How would you define it?" So I gave my my answer, but I would love to hear how you uh, how you what you said.
1: What I said is forgiveness um, occurs when we understand the humanity of the person and that each of us is striving to know God, as we say in the, the short obligatory uh, prayer about knowing God and, and, and really being close to God is, is what we should all be striving for. And, and so if we do something that's dastardly or wrong, we have hurt ourselves primarily. So if we understand that karma is instant, that a bad deed is, uh, accrues, Instantly to that person and a good deed accrues instantly to that person as well And so we should pity people who are doing bad deeds rather than be angry at them Now if they kill your child that might take a little while, right? Um, I would probably forgive them as soon as I was done doing the same to them <laughs> that, Oh, sorry, I didn't that got very it. dark very <laughs> fast No, but you, you know if they t- if they kill your child obviously you don't know how you'd it be very hard And I really admire that these women are doing reconciliation and of course you never know how you react till you're in that situation uh... the closest i have is that i, I did lose twenty two members of my family in the holocaust and i, I do thank god literally that uh, m- although i'd rather have been on neither side that that my family were the ones being killed to me i'd much rather be the descendant of someone who's killed in the holocaust which i am i'm named after someone who's killed in the holocaust than to be the descendant on the other side. Either way, I just pray and that's why I'm mm-hmm. a Baha'i that it just So forgiveness happen. comes from a really deep compassion, like a a
0: really, really deep compassion uh, of what the other person's experience might be.
1: And an understanding of our purpose as humans to get close to God, the, the Baha'i teachings mm-hmm. of getting close to God and, and that any bad act on our part removes us from God and so we should pity people that people aren't really evil. They're just, you know, Baha'u'llah said that, you know, Jesus said, love our enemies. And Baha'u'llah says, don't have enemies. And the reason we don't have enemies is we should understand that they just haven't figured out how yet to be our friends. Wow, that's 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 great.
0: That's a great perspective. I Now, I was saying when my answer to the question, just so our 57 listeners, in case they were wondering, I looked at it at similar, but a little bit different in that, you know, our, one of our main spiritual goals of being on planet Earth is to emulate the spiritual qualities of the divine. And one of the central spiritual qualities of God that is mentioned at the, the end of every Baha'i prayer is God is the all-forgiving. Um, now, can we be all-forgiving? Maybe not all-forgiving. Can we strive to be forgiving? Um, yes. And so my job as I grow and mature as a human being is to you know emulate kindness and 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 love and compassion and honesty and and also forgiveness for people that have hurt me or wronged me I apologize for all this we're we're taping this in downtown Chicago by the way I need to have forgiveness of all these ambulance drivers that are driving all over the place with their with their sirens on and you see they're go it's not just an inconvenience to me Steve there are probably sick or Wounded or hurting people out there that need these ambulances to get through the traffic. So I'm going to have forgiveness for the ambulances outside
1: the window. I rode up here with a police detective with a big, thick warrant. I'm I'm pleased to tell you he didn't come to this apartment, so you're safe. (laughs)
0: Fantastic. Now, Steve, going back a topic here, um, you talked about the Holocaust. You're from a Jewish background, and uh, it's a fascinating story how you became a Baha'i and uh, you're relatively new Baha'i, and I'd love to
1: hear uh, your story of uh, how, you, how you plunged in. Well, I uh, heard about the Baha'i faith, and I was always very enamored with, to this day, I remain very enamored with progressive revelation, the idea that God continually sends messengers. I first heard this when I was about 20 years old as a student at the University of Illinois, and I really loved that concept, and so I got on it right away, and in only 29 years, I became a Baha'i. Uh, but, wait. So you, you heard about it from a Baha'i context when you were younger? Yes, I was at Hillel, the Jewish Students Association at University of Illinois. And this gentleman came in and told us about progressive revelation. And I couldn't figure out, like, okay, so I'm Jewish and we're right and the Christians are wrong. But wait, there's more Christians, so maybe they're right and and we're wrong. No, 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 there's a lot of Muslims and maybe they're right, and the Jews and the Christians, and it just didn't make sense. And so when he came in and said there's... that." There's really only one God and he's sending the messengers and the message is really to love each other and the differences are just the social laws and teachings. I'm like, well, that makes a lot more sense. Mm -hmm. And it always made sense to me. I I didn't pursue it right away because, I mean, I was 19, 20 years old. Um, I was pursuing other things at the time Um, and uh, I pursued a business career. I pursued women to date and eventually married one. And uh, when I went to when my wife asked me five years later how. Uh, do you want to raise the children that we were just starting to date? How do you want to raise the children we might have in the future? And she said, Jewish or Catholic? And I said, Baha'i. And she says, no, a real religion. And so it was many more years till I got around to studying the faith. I I couldn't, I didn't know enough about Baha'i to defend the faith. But I always, for many years, I remember said I I said I was Jewish, but I really liked what the Baha'is had to say. Well, that's amazing because that person, do you know the person's name who came into the University of Illinois? Did you have at, to find it out? Carlton, I suspect, I'm not 100% sure that it was Carlton Mills. Okay. And he's still there. And they invited me down to Champagne, And when I saw him, I said, were you here about 30 years ago? And he says, yeah.
0: Oh, wow. And so here's, here's Carlton Mills living in Champaign-Urbana. And he goes in and speaks to a bunch of kids at the Hillel. And, you know, maybe they're yawning and fiddling with their pencils. And he's like, oh, I don't know what good this did, but think about that seed that was planted. And we never know as Baha'i teachers uh, how those seeds will take, how the so- if the soil will be receptive. And it may take 27 years for someone to spark the ideas of Baha'i, uh, Baha'i revelation, of Baha'u'llah's teachings uh, to kind of spring to life out of the
1: soil. Poor Carlton Mills, he's probably having to apologize to Baha'u'llah saying, I didn't mean it. <laughs> <laughs> so what's phase two of you kind of Having that
0: that seed planted about the Baha'i faith, but then actually turning the corner and uh, deciding to become a Baha'i,
1: what happened? So I um, studied Christianity. Actually, I had a friend of mine who asked me to study the Bible, and I so was, it was kind of like Jews for Jesus, but then you became Jews for
0: Jesus and Jews for Muslim for Islam, and then Jews for Baha'u'llah and Jews for Buddha, kind of right? All of it. All, right. all that, of it. And is you, that offensive at all? You I forgot
1: you forgot Krishna too. Okay. Um, so my friend tells me he wants to study the Bible. Now, meanwhile, I was dating um, around this time. I was dating my wife, so I was already dating a Christian, but I didn't really want to know anything about Christianity. I was Jewish, and he was very persistent. He's a Bible teacher, and we've become very good friends. And for 20 years, we studied the Bible every Saturday. And I taught him how to run because I was a runner, so that was my religion. And eventually, um, I very quickly came to love Jesus. I heard his words, and I said, well, those, that's pretty cool. You know, I don't know. Why don't I believe in Jesus again? Didn't really have a good answer. I never became a Christian, although, again, I was married to a Christian eventually. And years later, I had always admired the Baha'i faith. I moved to a community, uh, Highland Park, Illinois, with a strong Baha'i community. And I was running with uh, Tim Hendershot, who's a wonderful Baha'i, who's uh, actually since become disabled. So we can't run together anymore. And he, after years of running together, asked me to go to a Rui class. And that was the start of my real Baha'i education, he and his wife, Tamra who I consider kind of my spiritual parents. Um, after a few years I declared as a Baha'i. Um, I, I told my wife I wanted to declare as a Baha'i and then she told me I had to wait for our children's Bar Mitzvah because we'd raised them Jewish. Um, there's actually a little twist in the story if you have a bit of time. Yeah, go. Um, so within months after me telling my wife I wanted to declare and then her telling me I had to wait two and a half more years till the Bar Mitzvah, I was asked by a non-Baha'i to go to Akka Israel, Akko Israel to uh, start a program, a school for Jews and Arabs to help reconcile, basically uh, a training center uh, in Akko. And we actually ended up building the training center, but along the way in September of 2014, I visited Akko and I went to the Shrine of Baha'u'llah. And I have never been the same since, Uh, much to some people's chagrin. I talk about the Baha'i faith pretty much nonstop now. I kind of, the way I would describe it is on that day, September twelfth, two thousand fourteen, Bahaullah took my heart, and he's never given it back. Um, I decided to tell the world about Bahaullah, and I, I'm a loud person. I mean, not really loud, but mm-hmm. I, when I have something in my heart, I say it. I used to talk about payroll, and I think sometimes my family would like me going back to selling payroll, which is what I did for many years. But
0: and that's your business is payroll services right and you yes. kind of started from the very bottom as a salesman and we can get into
1: that a little bit if you want and you founded what is it paylocity and yes i founded a company that became paylocity and, and now i'm chairman of paylocity and uh, i've done very well financially and actually that's how i ended up in israel but this is really my second career as, as a movie producer that it gets into um that day on, in September 2014, I really changed. And I'd already decided to become a Baha'i, but I think I was intellectually a Baha'i and not fully in my heart. After that, I walked into, the, I really had an incredible experience at the Shrine of Baha'u'llah. I started crying. I saw peace in that garden there, peace on earth. I saw that we were in a new age and that Baha'u'llah had brought it. I saw it clear as day. I read the writings later that told me that. Now, when you say you saw it, what was you? You kind of
0: had a mystical experience, is what you're describing.
1: I had a mystical experience. So, can
0: you be a little more specific
1: about that? No. <laughs> I, I, um, I, it was really a feeling. It wasn't uh, a view. I didn't see paradise, but I knew it was paradise. So, all of a sudden, I knew in my heart. I was fully convinced and I have been ever since that this is a new age, that Baha'u'llah brought us into this new age. You know, God through Baha'u'llah, because it's always God, really. You know, I don't want to be saying Baha'u'llah is better than anybody like Jesus or, or Moses. He is Jesus and he is Moses and they are one. And so this messenger that God sent in in the form of Baha'u'llah this time uh, really brought us into this age. And we're in, you know, almost everybody, given just two seconds thought, would acknowledge we're in the new age. And all the religious texts say that a messenger will come, a Redeemer will bring us into a new age. Well, where's the Redeemer? Where's the messenger? Think mm-hmm, about it for mm-hmm, two seconds. Mm-hmm. And... So we as Baha'is have an idea. And so within months of that, I, was, I had declared as a Baha'i. Um, and uh, three days after I'd cl- I declared as a Baha'i, I was told uh, by my friend Farshid Ferdowsi that it would be a good idea for me to make a movie because I had the resources to do it. And here we are. The movie, okay.
0: So before we get to the movie, because there's a lot to talk about with this exciting new film you're doing and Spring Green Productions and uh, your new... Uh, movie company with uh, Baha'i inspired uh, movies as the mandate. Very exciting. Before we get to that, one of the things I find fascinating about you and uh, and in- incredibly charming is that uh, immediately after you became a Baha'i, your enthusiasm is so high. you're You're one of these, I don't have it on the tip of my tongue, but there's some Greek definition for enthusiasm. Maybe I can even look it up. It's, uh, yeah, here it is. I just looked it up. Enthusiasm. Is uh, from the Greek "enthusiasmos," possessed by a god, inspired. So I love that word enthusiasm as being possessed by a god, and 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 people with enthusiasm. I know Baha'u'llah really liked people that were, were enthusiastic. Um, uh, it, it's really exciting. But one of the one of the first things that you did, Steve, was go. You live near the Bahai Temple in Wilmette, and you went and volunteered and you give tours. So. How did that start? And I have some specific questions to ask you about your your tour-giving experiences. You're there pretty much every
1: weekend, right? I'm there um, during the week if I have time and weekend if I have time. So it's not every weekend or every weekday, but usually I'd I'd say if I'm in town two to three days a week, I'll be there for at least an hour or two. Um, Any spare time I have, I want to guide at the temple. Um, To me, it's a great place to be able to teach the people the faith. And, And my favorite days are when people walk in, having no idea what the Baha'i Faith is, and I'm able to touch them a little bit. I think my one of my favorite stories recently, uh, I have two of them. One is uh, there was a, a half a dozen young girls, about 13, 14 years old, and they walked into the temple, didn't know what it was. And I gave them uh, my normal speech on progressive revelation, introducing them to the Baha'i Faith. And five of the girls thanked me, and the sixth girl just cried. And I thought, well, I... Did something wrong maybe so I said are you okay and she said in a little mousy voice um, And of course, I'm pretty tall. I'm always looking down at people. I'm I'm okay, and I said are you sure you're okay? And she said Yeah, I I thought I was just coming to see a pretty building, but now I realize I've come to see so much more Mm. And that if I could do that, you know once a year I'd be happy to get someone into a new frame of mind and to realize the strength and the Magnificence of the revelation of Baha'u'llah if I could just get them interested to read his words I think in some ways I was definitely for decades sleepwalking you know I was doing my business which is wonderful and I'm really happy I love the business I love the people I worked with Um, I I love you know trying to do a good thing for humanity in many ways and building a business is one of them but the idea that this revelation came and and we don't hear it we don't see it to me is mind-boggling sometimes now that I'm up high of course I look back at myself only a few years ago and realize that I didn't know and so my, my goal is to try and just get people to open up like I did to read his words and to see his, his magnificence, his, his greatness, and to see how important it is to everybody. And yes, I'm getting enthusiastic.
0: There it is. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. So um, what have you learned over the years of doing these tours?
1: Most people are, are lovely and wonderful. Uh, most people are receptive of all faiths. Um, we get Muslims, we get Hindus, we get Jews, we get we get Christians. Most people are receptive to his message once they hear it. Occasionally, you get someone who's strident, uh, maybe a Christian who says Jesus is the only way. And I, I, I had a young girl in eh, about a year ago, and I was talking, and she interrupted and started pounding on me and trying to make me a Christian. Um, literally, trying to force me to be a Christian. If she had a punching boxing glove, she would have done that. And I finally had to stop her and said, you know, you, you do realize you're in our house of worship preaching. And I said, it's OK to have a different opinion, but you might be a little less strident. She finally kind of came to her senses. But that's very rare, usually. And I, and I have no problem if someone wants to tell me their opinion, and it differs from mine. I like to have conversations. But when you get very pushy about it, I, 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 I try. And I, I, for one of the first things I've learned, when I first started teaching, I, I'd offend more people. And what I learned to help not offend people, which is definitely not my purpose, people, you know we as bahais want reconciliation be- behind all of between all of humanity and so the last thing we want to do is offend someone by trying to educate them about what we believe and so what i tell people up front always is we accept all faiths we believe in the independent investigation of truth and that we are no way are trying to change their mind that this is just what bahais believe and they have no need to believe it and that diffuses a lot of anger right up front. And so, yeah, I, recently
0: I've I've kind of taken to when I give a Baha'i fireside or talk, especially like a fireside, I'll just straight up say, you know, I'm not here to convert you. Don't worry, we're not trying to convert you. And that just relieves the tension immediately because there's that that secret thing when people go into a quote unquote Baha'i meeting or fireside, like oh, they're gonna put this pressure on me to to join and stuff and. Sometimes I think that it's just better to just come out and say it, you
1: know? It's their path. And ultimately, it's their path. And, and I can't convert anyone to a Baha'i faith. I couldn't even if I tried. It has to be their path. And so all I want to do is tell them that he came, and then they can decide what they want to do. And if they want to do something with it, I think if I tell 10 people, one person might do something with it. And that's great. Um. And do you have any stories about
0: the temple itself or special places at the temple that you like to show people a quote
1: or some special little nuggets? Well, the story of the cornerstone is quite lovely and Baha'is from all over the world come. You know, one thing I can tell you is when I see Baha'is walk in, I almost can always tell the Baha'is now. They're just really happy. And so I I, I tell them either you're really happy or you're a (laughs) Baha'i. And they're almost always a Baha'i. A lot of them want to go see the cornerstone, which is underneath underneath the temple. Now, the story of the cornerstone really starts with Korintru. Korintru was the mother of the temple, and she was an amazing woman. She lost, I believe, four of her children early to early childhood deaths. And actually, uh, in 1912, when Abdul Baha came, her son was dying. And Abdul Baha went to see her son, and Korintru was very concerned, and um, as Bahais, and I would say I would share Karin True's opinion on this. If Abdul Baha said it, it was true. We didn't, we don't question that. Um, Abdul Baha, we don't view as a messenger of God. We view him as a mystery of God. That's what Baha'u'llah said he was. But we we, we we revere him tremendously in his wonderful um, knowledge and in his his essence of love and peacefulness. So um, he goes to see Karin True's son, and Karin True asks him afterwards, "How's my son?" And, and Abdul Baha says very good. And Corinne was greatly relieved because her son was on death's door. The next day her son died. And Corinne True couldn't figure it out and finally Abdul Baha had to explain it to her that what he meant was that her son was spiritually well, which is really how Abdul Baha looked at the world, not physically well. And so we could all learn from that lesson that our very lives, our physical lives are that meaningless, that our spirit is everything and we should spend our days trying to make our, to uplift our spirits. Um, now, Corinne True had a seamstress who worked for her, did work for her. Um, her name was Nettie Tobin, and Nettie Tobin learned the faith at Corinne True's house. Became an ardent Baha'i, but she was a widow. She had very little money, and she wanted to do something for the temple. So she had a vision that said, get a, get a stone, get a stone. And so she was able to obtain a stone from a builder's site, from a builder. Um, it was a, a stone, a free stone. It was a stone that the builder had rejected. And she took this stone at great uh, personal uh, effort, w- with great personal effort, up to the temple site. It was not the temple yet. She took it by train and then by uh, a wagon and then dragged it with a, an older man for the last few blocks and leaves it there in 1908 on the temple site. Four years later, Abdu'l-Bahá comes to dedicate the temple in 1912, and he says, bring me the stone. And they bring him neti stone, which has become famous among the Baha'is by this point. And he says, this is the cornerstone. And he says, the temple is already built. That stone is still there. It's known as the cornerstone. Now, the Christian Bible says that the stone the builders rejected will become the cornerstone. And so Christians take that to mean Jesus. And we Baha'is would agree. We like to agree. But we also think that there might be a truth in that story among, about Nettie Stone, which, when it literally came true. And so for us, there can be multiple meanings to stories, such as in the Bible. Beautiful. So now's a good
0: time to transition to uh, the movie, the origin of Spring Green Productions and this movie, The Gate. Uh, how did that all start? You said that was uh, rooted in a conversation with one of your
1: first early Baha'i friends? So this is Farshid Ferdowsi, who is, his dad was a very prominent businessman in Iran, and his father was a martyr. And actually when I declared, um, I declared in front of a picture of about a hundred martyrs, and there was his father depicted right behind me. Uh, It was a a painting, and uh, I'd known Farshid from the payroll business. We were both in the payroll business, friendly competitors. I'd Gone and visited him many years ago, and my company it was much smaller than his. And he'd been so kind. Uh, I didn't know all the new Baha'is were so kind back then. I just thought it was Farshid. And uh, I knew he was a Baha'i. I told him probably. That can that be pretty mean. I haven't seen it yet, Rain. Keep trying. So Farshid says uh, he, was, he, was, he was very kind, and I, I knew he was a Baha'i. And I probably told him back then, I don't remember, that I liked the Baha'i faith. And so I called um, Farshid up. We'd known each other for years. And I said, I'm a Baha'i now and uh, told him I wanted to just teach the faith and he said, well, if you do that, the rest of your life uh, you could reach maybe hundreds of people, but if you make a movie, you could reach millions and you have the resources to do it. And I've been a Baha'i all of three days. This was February 13th, um, 2015. Less than an hour later, I get an email from Peter Samuelson about doing uh, philanthropy with foster kids. And this was about philanthropy. It was through a totally different source. He would have had no idea that I just talked to Farshid. And uh, he wasn't emailing me as a movie producer, but Peter... This is is a
0: movie producer, Peter Samuels? Yeah,
1: Peter is actually a movie producer. He's made over 25 movies, the most popular of which was called Revenge of the Nerds. So (laughs) here's a pretty well-known movie producer emailing me right after I'm told to make a movie. I met Booger before, by the way. Oh, cool. Booger from Revenge of the Nerds. Yeah, I was I was a high point in my early LA career. <laughs> it's like, oh
0: man, there's booger.
1: Oh, that's see, I actually met not only Peter, but then I come back to Chicago. So Peter, I fly out to LA the next week. Peter says, go make the movie. Two years later, almost to the day, um, we made we shot the first interview with Doctor the wonderful Doctor Nader Saidi in Peter's living room. So it's really it comes full circle, and we did the Foster Kids work, and we actually have helped back a movie that Peter made called Foster Boy. So it all comes around.
0: Oh, fabulous.
1: Um, so uh, so the, you took
0: what your friend said to heart there about potentially reaching millions.
1: Yes, I did. Um, I, I like to say that I'd been a Baha'i all of three days. Had I been a Baha'i up to four days, I would have known better than mm-hmm. to try to make a movie about a manifestation of God. There are some challenges in that. But yeah, we just started going in. And I, and I was so fortunate along the way, knowing nothing about making movies, knowing just a tad more than that about the Baha'i Faith, to meet so many wonderful people who have mentored me, and taught me, and helped me, and helped me do this dream jointly, collectively, to make this Baha'i movie. There's so many people like, I'll, I'll just, you know, like you, Rain, who just said, you could have just said, well, no, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, big Hollywood stuff, and I'm not going to talk to you. But everyone's been so kind to me along the way, and, and really helped me, and said, no, you're making a movie about the Bob, I want to help you. For those few people who are tuning in that aren't Baha'is? Tell us who the Bob was. The Bob, I, I go back to the 1840s, and in the 1840s there was a worldwide expectation of a of a messenger coming among Jews. Uh, it was the Messiah. The, the Zohar said that he would come in the year 5600, the year 1840, and that they would be um, gathered back to Israel, and that there would be a huge worldwide technological revolution for humanity. So the Jews, of course, as we know, did not see the Messiah in the 1840s. But they did get to go back to Israel starting in 1844. Um, The Ottoman Edict of Toleration happens in March of 1844, so that officially allows them, or it loosens the uh, persecution against the Jews coming back. 104 years later, Jews get the country of Israel. And the technological revolution, while this podcast is, of course, a part of that, in TV and radio and everything, movies that we have, Uh, Just everything in our modern world, uh, planes, cars, uh, the invention, the pace of inventions has gone up a hundredfold since the mid-19th century. So what was predicted in the Zohar has come true, except, of course, the Jews didn't see the Messiah. Interestingly enough, the Christians, probably over a million Christians uh, all around the world at the same time in, in diverse countries, Germany, Switzerland, England, France, America, Holland, Scandinavia, all over the world, in India, all over the world there were separate movements waiting for the return of Christ and the biggest one in America was a man named William Miller. He had over a hundred thousand followers he guaranteed on October 22nd 1844 that Christ would return and the world would end and they'd be raptured up to heaven which of course did not happen which is why it's called the Great Disappointment and this Great Disappointment goes all throughout Christianity. So what does this have to do with the Bob? Well there's a third group And it's the Muslims, and they're waiting in the year 1260. By the way, that number's in the Christian Bible seven times. And this 1260 is the year 1260, Muslim years. Um, The 12th Imam has disappeared in 260. He's supposed to reappear in the year 1260. So the Jews are waiting for a divine messenger to come. The
0: 1260 translates to the 1840s.
1: Exactly 1844, the same year. So, you know, it's the same year as the Ottoman Edict of Toleration, the same year as the Great Disappointment is the year that the Bab actually does come in Persia, as expected, to the Sheikhis who were expecting him. This is a a Muslim group, a very forward-thinking Muslim group in Persia, and they're expecting the 12th Imam to come. Now, the Orthodox uh, Shia version of this 12th Imam returning was a thousand-year-old man coming. Which now they're, they're still waiting, they're waiting for a 1,200-year-old man, now it's been a couple hundred years. <laughs> I think they might be waiting for quite a while for that. However, the Shakeys were waiting for a young man, and the Bob does come as a young man on May twenty third, 1844. He says he is this promised 12th Imam. The very next day, the first telegraph happens, May 24, 1844, Samuel Morse, What hath God wrought from the Christian Bible? That's the first
0: phrase, telegraphed.
1: Ever. Yes. So the Bob goes all over Persia.
0: And that was from like Baltimore to Washington, D.C. or something Correct. like that? Yeah. Correct.
1: Correct. And, and just so happens that we are showing our film on May 23rd, the anniversary of the Declaration of the Bob, where was the Washington, D.C. premiere of this film. Um, so uh, the Bob goes to Mecca actually and publicly declares, comes back to Persia, gets thousands of followers. The king sends the number one religious scholar in Persia, Vahid, to check him out with a sword to kill him if he isn't who he says he is. Vahid publicly vows that he'll do this. Instead Vahid becomes a follower. He um, actually lays down his sword. It helps that the Bab reveals the equivalent of one third of the Quran in one day. He reveals the word of God hour after hour like, like a, a river, like a, uh, like a waterfall. The, the words pour out of his pen and Vahid is, is so stunned that he actually has to be revived while watching this by the Bob. Well, here goes your enthusiasm again, because you're gonna, you're gonna give away a spoiler alert, all the stories that are in the movie. Well, but we just wanted more of a background on who the Bob was. So anyway, the Bob is killed along with 20,000 his followers. He got over 100,000 followers. And he heralds um, the coming of another messenger. This is the prediction in, in the Muslim world that a herald prophet will come. Some call him the 12th Imam, some call him the Mahdi. And he's supposed to herald the return of a great messenger that all the Muslims are waiting for. And I love to tell Christians this, uh, that the Muslims are waiting for the prophet Isa. And they think, okay, and and then I explain that that's Jesus the Muslims are waiting for. And so we as Baha'is believe that was Baha'u'llah, and he said so. And we believe he's this great Redeemer promised by all faiths. The life of the Bob was so exciting. And one thing I'd love to say to people is that this movie will be exciting to non-Baha'is as well as Baha'is. The Bob had an incredible six-year ministry. It was a wonderful story. Um, They call the tale of Jesus Christ the greatest story ever told. I've been saying this is the greatest story never told. And I think even those people who are not religious, who are not Baha'is, would be very interested in just this film as, as a historical documentary.
0: And why did you choose the Bob to make it about, besides the excitement factor?
1: Two reasons. Number one, the excitement, and it's just a wonderful story. And it's small enough because Baha'u'llah is 40 years. I thought for my first movie to attempt to try and do Baha'u'llah would be too much. Uh, as it turned out, the Bob was also too much. The other thing is, the Bob is the herald prophet. The Bob was sent, I believe, by God to herald Baha'u'llah, to bring the world to Baha'u'llah. And so if you're going to bring the world to Baha'u'llah, you start with the Bob, you start with the herald, and then you move to the prophet, to the messenger himself.
0: And what do you want audiences to take away from this film and feel when they see
1: this film? I want them to understand the mystical greatness. So there's two audiences, two primary audiences. The Baha'is, I want the Baha'is to be enraptured and enthusiastic. I want to make Baha'is as enthusiastic. Not every Baha'is is off the charts enthusiastic as me. I'd like to uh, help invigorate our own community and educate people like myself, who I didn't know much about the Bab. Now, admittedly, I didn't know much about anything going into this, but I learned so much about the Bab and his teachings. So I think that most Baha'is I know don't know a lot about what the Bab taught. So giving a little bit of light to his teachings is great. To get the story of his life on film is great for Baha'is. So I think it's just to help educate and uh, excite Baha'is about the Bab would be wonderful and about teaching our, our, about our faith. And then for non-Baha'is, it's, it's a nice introduction to our faith. I, we're not preaching to people. We're not telling them they have to be Baha'is. Our, our job is really just to educate them that this is a historical story that happened. It's exciting, and for those people who want to, they can investigate our faith if they like the ideas we discuss.
0: Well, it's a fantastic film, and it's, it's especially fantastic considering it's your first film and it's the first film that's attempted to do this, and it's a, it's a broad scope. Obviously, it's really difficult. You can't have a reenactor playing the Bob in a film like that. Can you tell us about that
1: particular challenge? Well, we knew we couldn't portray the Bob, but we didn't know exactly what that entailed, that non-portrayal. And, and interestingly enough, neither did every, anyone. So here I am, a relatively new Baha'i, asking the Universal House of Justice how to not portray the Bob. And so we actually spent a day filming here in Chicago, Uh, Someone we filmed his hand, his over-the-shoulder shots, shadow, every type of thing we could think of to show the Bob without showing the Bob. As it turned out, they looked at it and they said, "Thank you." And all of it was disallowed. And so we, as part of this process, I, I understand this non- portrayal more. And we ended up not even being able to show anyone conversing with the Bob. So we do still shots when people are talking to the Bob. The whole idea is to understand the reverence you really have to have for the messengers of God. We cannot in any way per- portray them as human. From a Baha'i perspective, they're not. They are human in body, but not in spirit. And so the, the cloud that's often talked about, for example, in the Christian Bible, is their body. And so we do not want to emphasize the cloud. We want to emphasize the incredible spirit, that Christ spirit or whatever you'd like to call it. That inhabits these wonderful messengers that God, these teachers that God has sent us. Now you got some
0: great collaborators on this film. The director uh, Bob Hercules, who's not a Baha'i, uh, Peabody Award-winning uh, documentary director, has directed many docs here in Chicago. Um, uh, terrific guy. Um, but what did you learn specifically about movie making? It's a, it's a, it's an interesting quandary because I as someone who works in Hollywood, I get people who give me screenplays all the time and their movie ideas and they pitch and they say, you know, my cousin did audiovisual at Tennessee Mountain State College and I think he'd be a great filmmaker. And, um, you know, uh, but it's actually, it's seemingly simple because we see movies all the time and we ingest content. It's like, how hard can it be? It's you filming some people and they're talking and you edit it and you broadcast it but it is an extraordinarily difficult uh, discipline. What did you learn about the process this last year or two?
1: I learned you have to be detail-oriented. We wasted some money filming scenes that didn't make it into the movie, that we had to be more careful up front to do more planning. Like, I learned that movie-making is a business like any other and that you have to uh, manage people and you have to put people in the right positions. Um, I learned who does what. I didn't know what an executive producer was a few years ago when I started this odyssey. I wrote my first check to Bob Hercules, and I became executive producer on his Peabody award-winning award movie about Maya Angelou. And so that's when I found out what an executive producer is. And I always say that's my great talent, is signing checks. And then I Would you like to be an executive producer for my son's college fund? No, thank you, Rain. <laughs> but <laughs> thank you for asking. But, um you know, I think it's, it's wonderful that uh, so many people helped me along the way. I learned a lot of respect for the talent, for what the director does, watching Bob as a real professional on the set. One of the things that really warms my heart is the such great passion and detail that so many non-Baha'is put into their work. They, they really did great work, uh, not only Bob, but his partner, Keith Walker. Um, Mike Swanson, who's the third member of their team, Uh, Kayla McCormick who was our our field producer in Spain they work night and day, uh, none of them are Baha'i and they work night and day to help this project and I liked watching professionals at work another uh, highlight for me was in Israel we filmed at the amazing Shrine of the Bob. I I really don't have words for the Shrine of the Bob. I just would tell anyone who hasn't seen it Baha'i or non-Baha'i if you do nothing, if you see nothing else between now and the end of your life, see that uh, the shrine of the Bob is breathtaking. Um, more than the Grand Canyon. Yes. More than the Mall of America. No. <laughs>
0: okay, I That's just a, want to put it in perspective.
1: Yes, okay. even more than the Mall of America. The Grand Canyon is a physical piece of beauty, God's work. is is more beautiful than anything. But in terms of the combination of of God's beauty and the the magnificence from a spiritual point of view and physical point of view, the the shrine the uh, shrine of the Bob and the and the Terraces, the 19 terraces going up Mount Carmel are just, I, I still can't even describe them. I just say, go see them. But anyway, filming there was wonderful, but was even more wonderful was actually watching the interplay between our Israeli crew and our American crew, none of whom were Baha'is, and watching them interact flawlessly and seamlessly as a unified Bunch. They had never worked together before. Because working in film is kind of a universal language.
0: I've shot in a number of different countries, and you go in, everyone knows their role. It's almost like people uh, talk about it like an army. Like there's the general, and then there's all the people, and the, everyone has their specific jobs. And people know what their what their job is. And this is one of the big problems with amateurs getting in the business is people overreach what they should be doing. And everyone needs to do very specifically and very well in what they're chosen
1: direction is well i wrote checks to the limit of my ability but (laughs) (laughs) i did learn one lesson we had really non-script writers writing the script so for the next movie if i'm blessed to be able to make another movie for example about baha'u'llah which was in the original plan we Mm -hmm. we planned to make movies about baha'u'llah abdul baha Baha baha'u'llah's son and uh, Tahereh from this movie next time hire a professional script writer up front that was one of the big mistakes but again, as a, as a first-time filmmaker, I won't kick myself too much. I, mm-hmm. I did the best I could. I really believe I was lucky more than good and to have the film turn out as well as it did. And the uh, so there are a lot of different aspects of the film. You interview a number of
0: uh, what they call talking heads, you know, um, experts and people that are Baha'is and who talk and tell the story of the Bob and also illuminate different aspects of the Bob's life and work and teachings. And that's one aspect, right? Then you had reenactments. So this was kind of daring to kind of you went to Spain and you had people dress as you know Shiite Muslims from the 1840s, and you have someone, an actor, playing Mullah Hussein, and you know pondering the Quran, and you have Baha'is being persecuted, and kind of uh, and the and the reenactments are very well done. They're very um, they're not kind of on the nose. They're very um, what do they do they They illumine the material, and
1: uh, they're evocative. Do you remember our first conversation about that where you said, don't make them cheesy? (laughs) I think you said, don't make them, and then don't make them cheesy. Um, But I I didn't know what I didn't know, and I realize now as I look back that you were probably right on, that if we had done this wrong, if we had not had a really good director, and I would say that Adam Monshine, who played... Mullah Hussein also did acting coaching and, and really and came on board in a producerial capacity as well. Yes, uh, if you hadn't, if we hadn't had Adam and Keith, uh, Keith is a tremendously talented director of photography, and and Bob, uh, the professionals, as you might say, we would have been very cheesy. Right, but the point
0: is, is that you use these various different aspects. You have graphic designs, motion ca- graphic uh, images as well. I have a great story about that. And you that. have a narrator. Um, and music
1: is a big part of uh, uh, of what it is you're doing. Go ahead, yeah. So I have a couple stories about that, uh, little little stories. Um, we used two different uh, animation houses. Uh, one was called Blend, and we were having a conversation, Ed Price and I, who was a co- uh, co-writer, co-producer, um, a, a wonderful Baha'i author who has become a very good friend of mine and a mentor. And so he and I were having a, a conversation on a plane, and. The young man in the row in front of us said, Hey, that's really cool. I heard you guys talking. What was that you were doing? We said, Baha'i consultation. We were actually talking about a subject going back and forth. And he loved it. And he says, Wow, that's really good. I'm in business and I wish we could, you know, everyone could do that. And we were, then we started having a three way conversation. And then the, another gentleman from about six rows up said, Wow, I really like your conversation. I <laughs> want to join that conversation. So he did. And his name was Nick. And Nick happens to own an uh, animation shop. And he had no idea, you know, we were talking about movies. And we ended up hiring him to do some work in the movie, which he does. He did a great job. And so we, we used two animation studios and who both did great work. And uh, it was just so funny. It was just that random thing. Um, our composer is another. We had a couple composers who worked on it. Uh, the very, very talented Farzam Salami, who uh, actually you recommend. And he's done great work on the film. And then Mark Bandy, who'd worked with Bob before. And Mark... Uh, I hadn't met, and I finally met him after he did the work on the film, and I told him about my past, and I told him I used to own a Chinese restaurant in Evanston, actually within walking distance, about a block and a half from the Baha'i National Center, and about uh, less than a half mile uh, south of the temple, right off Sheridan Road. And uh, so anyway, Mark said, oh, wait, I used to be your customer. He was a very regular customer of mine at my Chinese restaurant 25 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic.
0: So the film is coming out soon, how are you going to release it? What's your
1: marketing plan? How can people see it? How can people promote it? Um, so we have uh, marketing, uh, hybrid cinema, uh, John Reese, he's uh, in charge of our marketing. He's been working on this for months, pulling out his hair because we've been telling him, don't market the film, don't market the film. And in a normal film, you market the film. Well, we had to wait uh, for permission from the NSA before we went full out. For those of you who don't know, that's the National Spiritual Assembly, and we have really done this film very much in conjunction with the baha'i administrative order which would be the nsa and the universal house of justice with the idea that they could help guide us and make sure that that our film serves the serves the community this is a, a labor of love that's our gift to the baha'i community and so we want to make sure that uh they could have their say in it as well and so the nsa wanted to make sure the film was worthy before they said go ahead and promote it And so it wasn't until after we'd done some test focus groups and saw that the film played well with non-Baha'is that they said, yes, we'll we'll go ahead and give a go-ahead. And there was very, very little time for John to do the marketing. As it turns out, uh, it's going very well. We have premieres now in Chicago and in L.A., and we have showings actually in several different cities. Uh, We have San Francisco, Palo Alto, and uh, Washington, D.C. What's the website for the film? It's thegatefilm.com. Um, I forgot to mention this: that ABC Television will be showing it nationwide, uh, and that'll be starting in May as well, starting on May 13th. We'll be publishing that within a couple of days on our website, um, and so that just that's an interesting interesting story too. Uh, Lely, the wonderful Layli Miller, who's interviewed in our film, the the head of Tahrir Justice Center, was interviewed for another movie by uh, Deborah, the woman who runs. Uh, Interfaith Broadcast Commission, Broadcasting Commission, and, and she, um, it's called IBC, and they put four uh, religious films on ABC every year. And uh, she was so impressed with Laylee, she put out a, uh, a request for films, documentaries, and Laylee passed it on to people. And when I called Deborah, she said, Oh, Baha'i, I'd love to do a Baha'i film. She just loved Laylee. And one of her uh, categories was for a film about the founder of a faith, and we just happened to have exactly what she was looking for. And so uh, it was very rare, she said, actually unheard of, that she would take the film without seeing it first. And she actually accepted the film with never, without seeing even a rough cut. Wow. And uh, so it was, I really, she's coming to the opening, and I'm very happy about that. I've never met her. But we just feel like I know her. And she uh, does these wonderful religious films, usually on social justice. And so I'm very happy to have made another friend. We're really happy to have it on ABC. Uh, it will be uh, available for streaming. We'll be selling DVDs and uh, we'll put it in some film festivals and we'll really see what happens. Uh, I I don't know if see what happens is what you're supposed to do for a marketing plan, but this is a very unusual movie. I, I, of course, as the movie maker, think it's the most important movie ever made, as does everybody, including the people making movies out of their garages. A part of my marketing plan is to rely on divine guidance and to say that things will happen that are unusual for this movie, and I think if God wants it to be successful, it will be.
0: That's beautiful. And obviously, Bahais can buy the DVD or contact your organization, your production company, if they want to have screenings in their towns. It'd be a great thing to rent out a community center or someone's home and invite, you know, a few dozen, few hundred people to see it. Uh, it's a great way to to share about the Baha'i faith. I, I found that with the uh, with the recent film about the uh, the bicentennial of Baha'u'llah that I could invite a lot of people that didn't feel pressured to come to a quote-unquote religious gathering because anyone can just go see a movie you feel safe kind of going and seeing a movie and it's a it's a great way to you know get the
1: the love and the, the spirit of of the Baha'i faith across so if you go to, to again thegatefilm.com you can request a screening over 150 communities have already done so and the other thing you can request is that one some member a member of the film team will come out and actually do a Q&A after the film Oh, that's fabulous.
0: Steve, uh, it's such a great story that you share. Thank you for your enthusiasm. I'm going to use that word enthusiasm. Thank you so much. And, and thank you for yours. Uh, and very exciting to think about the potential future projects that will come out of Spring Green Films and this exciting team that you've, you've built
1: up and uh, just really, really excited to see where you go in the future. Well, I I hope uh, we'll just get through our premieres this month. I think I'll be a little tired at the end of the month, but you would know that better than me. (laughs) Thanks so much, Steve. And thanks, everyone, for tuning
0: in. Goodbye. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Baha'i Blogcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation. Check out more fun Baha'i stuff on Baha'iblog.net. Thank you so much, and good night.